Born in Tepic in western Mexico on August 27, 1870, Amado Nervo would become one of the most influential Mexican literary figures of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He was a part of the second generation of Spanish-American modernists, similar to an author Nervo admired and an author we have covered previously on this podcast, Leopoldo Lugones. Originally planning to join the priesthood, Nervo would abandon this effort to write, working as a journalist for several different publications, including the magazines Azul and La Revista Moderna, the latter of which he co-founded as a successor to the former. In 1900, Nervo was sent to Paris by the newspaper El Imparcial, where he resided until 1904, returning to Mexico after publishing multiple works of poetry and prose, and gaining fame both at home and abroad. Nervo would travel again in 1905, moving to Spain as part of the Mexican diplomatic corps, where he was posted until being sent to Argentina and Uruguay in 1918. Less than a year later, Amado Nervo would die on May 24, 1919, after struggling with chronic health problems. The honors bestowed upon Nervo in the wake of his death were quite grand, his body being escorted home by an envoy of warships from multiple nations, 30,000 people attending his burial, and numerous reeditions of his works being published. Unfortunately, though he was an influential and popular figure in Mexican literature, there are very few recent translations of his work into English, as seems to be a common case uh, yeah. with some of our authors. The story we will be covering tonight is The Soul Giver, Nervo's fourth novella, published in five installments from April to May of 1899 and republished in his collection Other Lives in 1905. While there is a translation of this work by Michael F. Capo Bianco and Gloria Schaefer Melendez from 1999, it is difficult to find, so the version we are using was translated by Nate and is available on our blog to read. Yeah, I don't know. This is uh, One thing about the podcast is there's just so much stuff out there that has almost no recognition in the English-speaking world, and... Mm -hmm. I was kind of frustrated at how we couldn't get a hold of this translation. And even if we could, we couldn't make it available to no. anybody else due to copyright reasons. So, I mean, mm. I just really wanted to get this stuff out there because I think he's a really cool author. And mm -hmm. um, I'm glad we had the opportunity to go through this. So even in Mexico, it seems like Nervo is really popular, but only for his poetry. Yeah. Mm. Not for the prose at all. I actually asked somebody about it. Mm -hmm. Which was also the case for Lagones, right? Yeah, it's kind of interesting as to what aspects of these authors' lives get popular in their lifetime and remain popular afterwards. I mean, it's in a sense true of the author we're covering next, George Schuyler, who is mainly mm. popular for his nonfiction journalistic pieces, and he his fiction was like an afterthought. Mm. Yeah, it's just interesting as to... What people find of interest nowadays, I mean, a lot of Nervo's stories uh, seem to be somewhat sci-fi adjacent, the prose anyway. Rachel Ferrer in her book cites more than one. Mm -hmm. And we have a translation of The Last War up on the blog spot as well, but I think he wrote a good two or three others that are like in the SF adjacent vein. Yeah, there's a novel that seems to have a lot of spiritualist stuff in it called The Sixth Sense. Yeah. But he also apparently put a lot into some pseudo-slash-scientific background in that one as well. So 
it's something that he obviously paid attention to a lot, and he was apparently yet another fan of H.G. Wells, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Wells had pretty wide influence, and I think that's uh, pretty clear in a lot of these stories. I don't think Nervo directly name-checks Wells here, yeah. but he definitely checks a couple other influential authors in the genre, like V.A. and Flammarion, and mm-hmm. uh, I think a couple others, too. Yes, uh, and he uh, references the, the fantastic novels with Poe and Hoffman. Right. Nate, I thought that your translation was really great, and I think it really captures the humor of this story, because I think that was my favorite aspect of this, was the the way that it's written. It's very lighthearted and a lot of fun moments in it. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad it could be readable and convey some of that to the the reader. This is a very snappy and quick book. It has a lot of punchy lines with a lot of quick dialogue. It's short to begin with, but it does go by very fast. Mm-hmm. I think it's of comparable length to the Hinton we read for the last episode, but as far as like <laughs> reading time and like effort you need to put in, it's like way, way less. Yes. But not not as much to decipher or puzzle over in this one. It's a very easy read and t- takes very short time. Yeah, even though it does deal with some pretty weird and strange metaphysical concepts mm. in a very cool way that you don't really see, I, well, I guess maybe in later science fiction, at least I can't recall any stories from around this time getting into that idea. Mm-hmm. What, what were your thoughts about it, uh, J.M.? So I definitely was intrigued by it, and I definitely, there were parts that really I thought were were quite amusing i guess like especially when it got to about the halfway point and the big thing happened that Mm. i guess we'll talk about later in the the synopsis and they're they're sort of like a quarreling couple essentially and yeah i really liked i guess i really liked the the kind of the cleverness of it and also the way that the way that this was handled like he was very I mean, there was there was a certain strangeness about it that made me feel a little weird as well. Like how this again, it's hard to talk about specifically without getting into the plot details. So I guess I'll just say I I pretty much liked it. I mean, it it made me feel it made me feel a little weird, I guess, in a way, just because of the way certain things were handled and like there were certain things about the structure of the story that I didn't really understand why they were done that way. And things that I thought were going to be significant that maybe were not, like the relationship between the doctor and his friend. Yeah. yeah. Mm. That seemed to be pointing maybe in a certain direction. And I guess, I don't know, I, I did think like the structure of the whole thing was just a little strange sometimes, especially toward the end. Mm-hmm. But I quite liked it. I, I thought it was a really interesting work, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is an entire chapter called Diversions in it. So, <laughs> yeah, they kind of ha- it has a different structure that moves from place to place. It was a bit hard at times trying to summarize it because it's sort of like I have to briefly mention a- one thing that is just sort of mentioned at one point that isn't entirely connected to the rest of what's going on at that yeah. moment. Yeah. Yeah, well, well, I will get into the plot and then we can discuss it at greater length. Sure. So, the Soul Giver starts with a doctor by the name of Raphael, lamenting in his diary about his desire for someone new in his life, a soul that can love him, show him an affection he cannot gain from his cook or his cat. Luckily, his housekeeper soon announces a visitor, 
a poet named Signor Andres Estevez, who is a good friend of the doctor's. Andres reminds the doctor of the great affection he has for him, since it was Raphael who had helped launch his career by publishing his first works of poetry. He wants to present to him a gift, a gift of a soul. Skeptical of the poet's gift, the doctor questions him on the nature of the soul, which belongs to a woman but can leave the body it inhabits, then reluctantly accepts it, which Andres says will be his the day after. When the next day arrives, Raphael is pondering Andres, who appears to have quite a strong psychic force, when his housekeeper, Doña Corpus, comes bearing a letter. Corpus is described as is her desire for the world to end, and her prayers to ensure that will happen. The letter she brings is judged to be written by a woman due to the handwriting. The writer calls herself Alda, and reveals herself to be the soul that came from Andres, her master, giving herself over to Raphael. Now that he has received her, Raphael wonders what to do with her. He wonders if he can receive the affection he has been looking for from her. He later gets another letter from Andres that claims Alda can be useful for his profession, since her powers of divination can aid the doctor in diagnosing his patients. He warns Raphael, however, not to keep the soul away from her body too long, something that will become very important later then informs his friend of his departure to Italy. Raphael calls the soul to him, and Alda appears. As the doctor questions her, she reveals that Andres possesses multiple souls like her, that he sends them on journeys through space, far from Earth, and that she has seen 600 planets and 2,000 suns. She tells Raphael she can accurately diagnose any ailment his patients have, a service which Raphael is grateful for, but then he asks if Alda could love him. She responds in the negative, claiming love requires willpower, which she lacks. Raphael is upset by this, but continues to persist in his desire for her affection. As time passes, the doctor utilizing Alda's abilities, his influence and fame grows, and he soon finds himself leaving his home country of Mexico for Europe. He goes to France, then travels to Russia. Meanwhile, Alda's body, a young nun known as Sister Teresa, remains in a cell in a convent in Mexico. One night, however, the doctor waits a long period of time before allowing Alda to leave his side, once again arguing with her about if she could love him. When he finally dismisses her, she returns soon after, saying that her body has died from being deprived of its soul for so long. She needs another body to animate, or she will be gone from that plane of existence. Unable to procure a body on such short notice, Alda asks Raphael to go to sleep, and, desperate, embodies him, taking over half of his brain. When Raphael wakes up, he finds both his soul and Alda's inhabiting his body. Alda tries to assuage the misgivings Raphael has about their new situation. He realizes that as he still loves Alda, he now loves himself, but Alda counters that that is usually the case anyways, for it is a person's own perception of another they love, rather than the actual person. She then admits to loving Raphael back in this form, and the two accept the new situation, living fused to each other. Raphael ends up having to retire his practice, given that Alda doesn't have her divination abilities anymore, confined to the doctor's body. However, she still has her memories of the interstellar travels she had done for Andres, she recounts them to Raphael, speaking of life on other planets, including Venus, Neptune, and Jupiter. Though the two souls are immensely happy at first, 
Their differences and independent desires soon start to interrupt their peace. Alda constantly monopolizes their conversations, using their shared mouth more than the doctor. She picks up piano, eats sweets, and smokes cigarettes, things Raphael hates, and she also, to Raphael's distaste, not only insists on reading before they sleep, but she doesn't even read scientific literature, only the fantastic novels of Poe and Hoffman. (laughs) The horror... At least when you're like in a normal domestic partnership and you have that kind of situation, you can just leave the room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On two opposite sides of the bed, but you can't do anything. Right. It's the same body. <laughs> Eventually, the two souls conclude they must find some way to separate. Raphael, unable to think of another option, immediately considers suicide, but Alda refuses that, saying she wants to live so he has no right to kill them both. She then proposes that they contact Andres, who could help her find another body to inhabit. When they track down Andres, who had traveled from Italy to Jerusalem, he informs them he already knows of their problem, having learned it through the other spirits he possesses. After both of them confirm to the poet that they want to break their union, Raphael says he would like Andres to find a body for Alda to animate. Andres then tells the couple that in order to help them, he must speak a certain Hebrew word that unlocks the power he needs. The problem, though, he then admits, is that he has forgotten how to pronounce it. Visiting a Jewish high priest, Andres is able to relearn the word from him, then focuses on the problem of finding a body for Alda. He comes up with an idea, that Alda could inhabit Dania Corpus, Raphael's housekeeper. They approach the woman and ask if she would accept the new soul, and while she is confused and concerned about the dangers to herself, she agrees. Unfortunately, the attempt to place Alda within her kills her, the shock of it too much for the older woman. Once again disembodied, Alda now desires to merely leave this plane of existence and not hold on to the world anymore, but Raphael refuses to see her go, keeping her from departing. Andres tries to convince her to make her own body of the elements surrounding her, or to remain with the other souls in his power, but she turns these suggestions down. She then explains to Raphael that though she will not be constantly and completely by his side any longer, she will be a part of the world around him, with aspects of her in all he experiences. With this promise, the doctor lets her go, all the leaving him with the ghost of a kiss. We are assured by Nervo that she keeps her promise to Raphael, displayed through a poem he, with the aid of Andres, writes later in life. The story ends with a strange interview with the author where he explains aspects of the story and his process and implies that this last bit was to fill up the required amount of pages for the publication, which uh, I think really highlights the humor, as I've mentioned, throughout this work. Yeah, I didn't get the last chapter. This whole thing seemed very specific and very of its time and place, and I didn't really understand (laughs) what he was like. He seemed to be arguing that he should be allowed to write a short story. (laughs) I I think what happened here is this was initially published without this epilogue mm. and he's just kind of responding to his own critics and the reprinting. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not entirely sure if, if that's what it is. It definitely sounds that way. Yeah. I, okay. I wasn't, sh- I thought that it sounded as though he was just trying to fill some space. Yeah. I mean, it could be like in the book form because mm. uh, it was originally serialized, but he does get in a couple pretty good punches in that chapter. Yeah. But yeah, it is kind of jarring because if the thing ends and then he just breaks the fourth wall and there's this whole like weird dialogue thing Mm -hmm. and he's answering all these like i guess yeah perceived questions from critics right yeah (laughs) among them 
questions about the length of the work and why he doesn't write longer works and why. And why did he choose that specific title? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would have liked to translate this as the donor of souls instead of the soul giver. Mm. But the soul giver was used as a previous translation. Uh, Yeah, it's. Donor of souls, it sounds a little cooler. Mm. It's kind of good to stick to what. I mean, because a lot of people do just look up the name in English, right? Yeah, so exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's unfortunate, but it's true. Yeah. The soul giver, aka the donor of souls. Yeah, right, exactly. Just like preferring dog's heart, just aka dog's heart. Right, yeah. I mean they, they did both for that one. I'm sure there's plenty of other classic titles that have been translated in English that the titles aren't consistent. Oh yeah. I think we encountered some inconsistent ones with Vern. Eve of the Future versus the Future Eve. Mm. Yeah. So, I have a question. What do you all think is the significance of the fact that this soul belonged to a nun? Uh, it's, like, the religious stuff, like, mm. I think Nervo was into Kabbalah and mysticism and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, very much so. Yeah. I didn't of, understand a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I get there's a lot of the religious imagery there. But sometimes, like, I just don't know what he's trying to say with it. Mm-hmm. it I mean, it, it does feel significant that the the nun is having all these wild interstellar voyages and things like that. And she's mm-hmm. kind of incoherently jittering and mumbling while she's in the trances. And they get yeah. the, yeah. I guess, head clergyman or whoever he is to investigate the matter. And mm-hmm. he decides, oh, it's all good because she's doing it in the service of God. Yeah, he checked on her, and yeah. he said it was not of the devil, so. <laughs> Just fine. <laughs> Who else could it be? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even when she's telling Raphael, Alda, uh, I mean, he asks, like, have you seen God? Have you met God? Yeah, and, right. And she says she hasn't yet. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's just one path to the divine infinite that the doctor even himself becomes a believer in throughout the course of these events. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But yeah, it it does lean pretty heavy into the Jewish mysticism stuff at the end. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he even in text spells out or I guess illustrates the Hebrew characters mm-hmm. for the word he's spelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is an entire section where he does go into detail about the word. Yeah. And it's like <laughs> celestial music. Yeah, and he goes into the whole numerology behind the letters and how that adds up and stuff yeah well it's four right it's something to do with the name of god yeah right yeah again that that whole stuff is a little bit beyond me but it was certainly very (laughs) popular at the time that kind of spiritualist kabbalah mysticism Mm -hmm. slant to religion yeah and he did seem to be someone who explored multiple faiths and stuff he seemed similar to blackwood in that way Nervo, where he kind of was interested in multiple different belief systems once he left the priesthood. Yeah, and that definitely expresses itself in the text. Mm. I I think it does splice up nicely with some of the previous science fiction stuff in this vein. I mean, Alda, when she leaves the plane of existence and she's finally free at the end, she chooses the spiritual name of Lumen, which is the title of one of Flammarion's more, I don't know if you call it a novel, but it's sci-fi adjacent works or whatever Mm -hmm. where it's just basically this like 40,000 word philosophical dialogue and it just sounds really tedious but it was really popular hugely influential yeah hugely influential and it's been name checked like a lot in the stuff that we've read Mm -hmm. so far yeah Yeah. and Flammarion's works in general yeah Alda is in fact 
somebody who's in a nunnery, or at least her her human body is. Yeah. And presumably, so here's what I didn't really I didn't really expect because I mean maybe it's just because I've been reading for so long certain types of fiction, and I just kind of expected Andreas to be somehow in the wrong or somehow like mm. undermined at the end or somehow like try to not undermine Raphael but like maybe teach him a lesson or something like that yeah like it just mm-hmm. it was different and there was some hints about their relationship and Nervo was kind of like oh I'm gonna go into this now and I'm gonna go into how they grew up together and how it helped one another and stuff and he kind of did a little bit but mm-hmm. he didn't really go very far with it and it just kind of, it wasn't what I was expecting, you know, just like, oh, I'm going to go back to Andreas for help. And Andreas is talking about, like, he has all these souls. He just kind of carries them around with him wherever he goes. Why is that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, talk about ethics. That just yeah. randomly snatching the souls from nuns and whoever else. Yeah. I mean, probably people that wouldn't be missed in their day-to-day lives. I mean, she's cooped up yeah. in this convent. And even Raphael's surprised that convents still exist in Mexico. Mm-hmm. So there's probably weird stuff going down at wherever she is. And if she's just off for like eight hours a day, like in this trance-like state, jittering nonsense. Yeah. And don't worry, and the bishop's there and he's like, oh, don't worry. It's not the devil. It's, right. it's good, really. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and she's also implied to be like mentally impaired. She, yeah. She's a... Uh, She's, they say Maybe. she can string more than two words together or something. So that is also like, ah, I'm going to take advantage of this woman who can't really protest right. uh, that much about what's being done. Yeah. yeah. She's cloistered away, literally, and she's probably in some somewhat abusive situation at the nunnery mm. herself. But her soul is very wise and free. Yeah. But it yeah. also can't, it doesn't have a will of its own. Mm-hmm. Which I think is interesting, right? Like yeah. Will Will seems to come from a different part altogether, mm-hmm. is what he's implying. I like how kind of pantheistic it is as well. Like, it's kind of, I mean, yeah, you mentioned, like, obviously, not merely in terms of religiosity itself, but, like, he mentions the Jewish Kabbalah and also, obviously, a lot of Christian references. But there's mm-hmm. also when Alda is trying to convince Raphael that, hey, we can live like this now, it's okay, you know, I just had to do what I had to do. And she's like, oh, don't worry about it. All sorts of the pagan gods live as two beings of two different sexes in one body. And it's right. totally fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 it's like, you're basically a god now. Because <laughs> if you're a man and a woman, you're basically a god. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're not just a man and a woman, you're a god. <laughs> yeah, they don't really go into the gender thing too much. But there's yeah. one chapter where they do play around with the pronouns a lot and aspects of masculine versus feminine and what it would be like Mm. to combine the two in a i guess literally androgynous fashion where one half of your brain is female and one half of your brain is male yeah and even in the the beginning the first discussion uh with andres andre says that souls don't have any gender right right. depends on i guess the body it's inhabiting yeah right yeah it's kind of an interesting way to frame it there's also i guess the implied homosexual relationship between Andres and Mm -hmm. Raphael that is mentioned in the commentary at the beginning of the Spanish text that I translated it from. And Mm -hmm. again, it's one of those things that's very subtle and only kind of mentioned very early on in the beginning where they talk about how much they love one another. The words that they're using just seem to be a little too 
strong for people that are just friends. Okay, I didn't really get that from the English translation so much, but maybe that could be me as well, right? Like, I don't know. I didn't really necessarily... I mean, I'm not saying it's... I don't think it's a thing, but I didn't necessarily see it as being too strongly worded to be not a thing, if, you think, if that makes sense. Yeah, I don't know. It's one thing that kind of, like, struck me when I first was reading it, and I was just like, huh. And then I read the introduction, I was like, okay, yeah. That's, Somebody that's, else that's picked what up he's doing here. Too. Yeah, right. I, I yeah. was struck by that as well. So I'm I, I, I'm glad to see that it wasn't just me thinking yeah. that. Uh, <laughs> I did think that when I first was reading it, I was thinking that maybe Andres was offering his soul to Raphael. Yeah. That was my first prediction. And I was thinking like that. So that's really interesting. So here's kind of going back to what I was saying earlier. My first instinct was to think it was uh, some kind of trap. <laughs> <laughs> right. Mm. I mean, even comments that you know the gift of the soul is like a gift of an elephant, and uh, uh, yeah. how it's this burden that's <laughs> something nobody really wants. It's more of a punishment, right? Than anything, exactly. But... Yeah, and and almost like, I mean, I know we were just talking about the Master and Margarita, which is a book about the devil, but it, it's almost like it felt like. Andreas was the devil coming to him saying, oh, yeah, right. well, you've done so many great things for me. And that I, <laughs> you know, you've been. But the thing is, he doesn't seem like that kind of person. You know, he's a doctor and all that. He's not some kind of like you'd expect that to happen to, I don't know, a gangster or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, and it's just like, oh, here, here's a soul and do with it what you want. You know, and it's, yeah. Of course, I mean, if it's in the beginning, he is talking about, like, the nature of his desire and how it's like, he always wants something, and then as soon as he gets it, he doesn't, it always turns out to be underwhelming or something. So that could have been a possibility, is here's a soul for you, and it's not at all what you expected it to be. Yeah, yeah, it was, (laughs) it was really uncanny, uh, just thinking about how this would go, like, I really had no idea, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it moves really quick. Mm Mm-hmm. It's amazing that he fell asleep when he did, too. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, hey, fell asleep. Well, don't worry about it. <laughs> and she was, like, rushed for time, too. She was like, uh-oh, this is this is getting really bad. I have to, I, I need a body in soon. <laughs> yeah. It definitely pulls a fast one, yeah. It is ultimately his fault for being too greedy with what she can do and yeah. being away from her body, even though he knows very well not to keep her out or else that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. He, he brought it on himself, especially just because he, at, what was it? Three, three times she tried to tell him that she had yeah. to leave and right. he keeps, he keeps her there. Yeah. Yeah. And then it almost had that like fairy tale kind of aspect to it where it's like, Oh, you have this beautiful thing and it's great. But you can screw it up really easily, so don't. Mm. Right? Yeah. But then, <laughs> but then the result is like not quite what you would expect, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely an interesting take on it. I mean, the two brains in one body concept. I, yeah, I, I just don't know if there's any other writers who are writing a story along those lines with that trope. I mean, it's obviously manifested itself in science fiction in the decades since yeah. but I know Robert Heinlein wrote a whole book like that when he was a dirty old man yeah <laughs> yeah he did <laughs> he did it's, it's, it's the same concept too I think it's what is it I will fear no evil I think yeah but this was published at the turn of the century initially mm. so way before all that stuff and 
it doesn't really go into like a lot of the scientific elements. It's more philosophical and no. metaphysical <laughs> and stuff like that. There is that layer underneath. There is the cool. There is the cool interplanetary uh, yeah. soul journey yeah. though. That's yeah, yeah. Which I assume Andres makes the souls do, so he has something poetic to talk about. <laughs> is yeah. what I yeah. had thought. <laughs> I mean, what better subject for poetry than seeing the cosmos? right up front yeah well i think maybe i haven't read his poetry but he's certainly really recognized for that maybe some mm. of it's cosmic right yeah. yeah i'm not sure if any of his poetry has been translated into english i think poetry oh, yeah. is probably more difficult to translate than prose mm. because you even have to keep in mind meter in addition to rhyme scheme and all that thing it just sounds like an absolute nightmare yeah i always feel weird when i'm like reading uh translated work and there's a poetry excerpt yeah, and I'm, I'm like, even if it's like something created by the author, and it's obviously supposed to be poetry, and I know that the translator's done all kinds of things with it just to make it seem kind of like poetry. Yeah, fortunately, the one at the end of this novel was very simple and didn't rhyme, so I didn't have to make any crazy executive decisions or anything like that. It's just it was an easier one to, to yeah. translate. That's for sure. Not too much mm -hmm. jumping through hoops. No, no. That part, like, even though I mean, it almost. Almost made me think back to Star Sci. Yeah. Yeah. Gretchen, that's a book that we did really early on. I, I'm pretty sure it's come up before. Yeah, I think we might have mentioned it last episode, actually. Mm. Oh, yeah. It should come up more often because it's a strange <laughs> strange work that that seems underappreciated, which is the kind of thing we like to do on the podcast. But as a space opera from the 1870s, I think. I think it? earlier like 1850s mm. i want to say yeah 1850s you're right yeah it's quite something but cool. and yeah so the descriptions of like the the different planets and and kind of the societies i mean we've seen that a fair bit on the podcast in a way like again you know hans klim right right and kind of just just going through them sort of quickly and like just giving you a, a very general picture of how strange it is out there in the cosmos <laughs> yeah and again it's it's very very quick the way he goes by it like i think each planet and celestial body gets like a couple sentences at max but he mm -hmm. he puts a lot into those sentences and he, yeah. he does make it poetic and yeah meaningful mm -hmm. what was andreas doing during all this there were there were hints about about it like he was moving from place to place mm -hmm. yeah i i think probably increasing his psychic power and getting yeah. more souls so yeah. he's some kind of like weird wizard character basically <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he has all these chained up souls that he walks around with everywhere. And he's always traveling. <laughs> I don't know. It's so funny. He's so sinister. but And yet, like, nothing he does in the story, like, it doesn't really, uh, he does what he needs to do at the end. Maybe because he really was Raphael's good friend, even though he is an evil soul-stealing wizard. Yeah. <laughs> he yeah. has some very questionable morals, but his friendship with Raphael is genuine. Yeah, and he yeah. seems to be moving... From centers of knowledge to centers of knowledge. I think he goes from Padua to, is it either Alexandria or Cairo or maybe both? Yeah, I think it was Cairo. Yeah, and then he ends up in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So definitely centers for religious knowledge and arcane libraries and things like that. Mm -hmm. Probably, yeah, just going around increasing his uh, wizard power. Mm -hmm. I guess is a noble goal as any. <laughs> so at the end, he's, what is it, a monastery? In Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in Jerusalem, yeah. But there's a brother that he's 
the the brother there he consults yeah, the high priest yeah yeah and the high priest himself has a huge collection of arcane religious books from all over the world like a lot of yeah. chinese and indian religious text and yeah there's like an entire paragraph where he goes through and he lists <laughs> all of the texts that he's read yeah I, I didn't recognize like half of them he seems to be really impressed by the library yeah <laughs> i know the vedas were on there like the hindu books and yeah i think he mentions the taoist texts and several others yeah right the I Ching. yeah but yeah it's it's, it's quite the library so a very learned person that Andres keeps around him, I guess. Useful to know pronunciations of various magic words that'll let you to do things with souls and other stuff of that nature. Yeah. As long as he can remember how to pronounce the words. Yeah, well, that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I really just, I don't know, this this was such a strange story. And it was really cool, and it was like, I liked certain aspects of it a lot, and certain aspects just kind of, I didn't quite, I don't know that I quite knew what was what he was going for, but I still thought they were cool. Mm. Like, just thinking about about these mysterious, uh, mysterious relationship between the characters of Raphael and Andreas, which it seems like Nervo wanted us to think about, because he, he created this, like, he kind of did this whole weird tangent where, again... It seemed like he was really really go into the background of these two and what it was leading up to it and and I was I remember reading it and thinking I have no idea I actually have no idea where this is going yeah <laughs> and it, it it seems like it seems like they really yeah they did perhaps love each other enough so that whatever their natures were yeah that Andreas was going to help his friend Raphael to solve his his weird new domestic problem. And in the end, he does help. Divorce them. Yeah. Yeah. Did Nervo himself go through a divorce? Did Does anybody know? I didn't really get that far into his biography. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, from what I... I mean, I read through the Rachel Ferreira book. I didn't see anything about, like, his yeah. relationships. I'm sorry, like, I was on a... I joined a friend's watch party stream today and they were watching david cronenberg films mm. okay and first they watched shivers and i tuned out and they were about to watch the brood and like that's a movie about somebody's intense marital problems mm. and so it's now i'm just thinking oh is, is nervo trying to exercise something with that looks like he was married but his wife died in 1912 and he was mm very moved by his death and uh, wikipedia says that there's a rumor that he used to go to the cemetery every night for one oh. year hmm. very creative very creative piece of work though i i think i would recommend it to most most audience if you don't mind a lot of mystical kind of stuff in with your mm -hmm. fiction i know some people don't seem to like that but it's just a it's it's kind of beautiful it's kind of strange it's mysterious it's funny definitely yeah, yeah. some funny lines in there some some really light moments of prose and just some like absurd scenarios like the apocalyptic cook who's always wanting the world to end and oh, yeah. uh, little touches <laughs> like that that just don't have any yeah, bearing like... on, on the overall plot but they're <laughs> it's cool that they're there <laughs> yeah Gretchen did it remind you a little bit of Leonora Carrington yeah I could see that definitely it does have a bit of that humor that she has it's sort of it has that sort of quality of talking about things that I think could be determined as a bit more 
disturbing. As you were saying, it's sinister, but at the same time made sort of lighthearted and a little more matter-of-fact than it could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nate, you should read The Hearing Trumpet. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of the things that's on my list. It's it's really cool, yeah. It was a book that Gretchen and I read at the same time mm-hmm. last summer, and it's got this whole section in the middle that's like an excerpt from a, an old book, and it's like this detail of this 12th century nunnery, and it's like something out of a really, really crazy non-exploitation film. <laughs> like, it's... it's then, yeah, the ending is pretty wacky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely have to check that out. Yeah. Uh, I made, like, no progress in North and South over the last month, so I'm going to knock that out, and maybe I mm-hmm. could uh, start that one or uh-huh. something for, like, a more uh-huh. lighter read. I, I did finish Faulkner, so that's my yeah. news about the books I've been reading. I did finish uh, Light in August. <laughs> yeah, that's a crazy ending in that one, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say I, I definitely also recommend Leonora Carrington's stories. Her short stories are really good, too. Yeah, I have to read more of the short stories. I've still only read the rabbit one. Uh, yeah, White Rabbits and the yeah. and the Weird, right? Yeah, but I don't really have anything else to add about The Soul Giver. I think that's pretty much, yeah, like, read this if you want to be mystified in a cool way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely fun. I liked it a lot. And I'm glad we could put this up there for people to read. And, yeah. you know, we put disclaimers on all of our translations that this is not meant to be the authoritative translation. It's just meant to be something readable and hopefully something that can capture the spirit of the original text. So, yeah, we hope you read it and we hope you enjoy it. And if you are a native Spanish speaker and you have some suggestions for us, feel free to drop us an email. We'd love to hear from you. So are we ready to go to 1930s Harlem? I think so. Yes. A nice change of scene. Our next author is a case of someone who is quite well studied, but perhaps not in the area we're looking at tonight. George Schuyler was a controversial author. The title of his autobiography, Black and Conservative, might explain he went from a card-carrying member of the Socialist Party of America in the beginning of his career to a supporter of Barry Goldwater at the end. Schuyler was a prolific author of nonfiction, uh, that is, journalism and think pieces, in African-American publications, and he wrote a great deal of fiction. His first novel, 1931's Black No More, is a sci-fi-adjacent satire on race. In particular, is quite well known, even making it into Penguin Classics lineup of uh, republications. However, he also authored a number of pulpy stories under various pseudonyms that seem to be almost completely unknown in the modern era, one of which we'll be taking a look at tonight. 
So Schuyler himself was born in Providence, Rhode Island on February 25th, 1895. Lovecraft country. Yes, it is. <laughs> he didn't stay there for too long, though. No. He says none of his ancestors were enslaved after the American Revolution, and he remarks that interracial marriages were common in the early 1800s. An example of this is his great-grandmother, who was a woman born in Madagascar that married a German sea captain. And he was quite a fan of interracial marriage himself. He is, yes. He said he said that he he thought that miscegenation would eventually solve the race problem. That that was something that he stated. Yeah, so. and his wife was white. Yes. And yeah, uh, very interesting and complex figure. But his immediate family, quote, haughtily looked down upon those who had been in servitude. They neither cherished nor sang slave songs. And according to Schuyler, this prejudice was common until World War One amongst African-Americans from the North. He grew up in Syracuse, New York. That's 45 minutes from where I live. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if his house is still there. It'd be kind of an interesting thing to see if there's any other local monuments in Syracuse. I know the papers of Schuyler are held at Syracuse University. Hmm. So it might be possible that there's some Schuyler monuments or, or plaques or sites still there in Syracuse. Yeah. According to Schuyler, it sounds like a pretty nice neighborhood and nice house that he grew up in, though his father died when he was young, and his family took up domestic jobs to make up the income. The first political event that he remembers was McKinley's assassination by the hands of an anarchist, and the idea of being an anarchist just seemed totally crazy to him, because to him, government represented the genial cop on the corner, the jangling fire engines with their galloping horses, the even tenor of the way of life in our neighborhood. He attended school from kindergarten on and found a love of reading at an early age through his mother, particularly the works of Kipling, Longfellow, Tennyson, and Wilson's The Black Phalanx, which is a history book about African-American soldiers who fought in the major wars up to that time, which were namely the Revolution, the War of 1812, and the Civil War. After he graduated from high school, he joined the Army in 1912 as to provide future career opportunities for himself. He fortunately never saw combat in World War I, but spent most of his military tenure in Hawaii and was discharged in 1918. In his autobiography, he relates a lot of amusing anecdotes about the characters he meets in the service and also mentions a very important yeah. skill he acquired, which is the knack of drinking down a whole quart of beer, breathing the while, and yet yeah. never removing the neck of the bottle from my mouth. <laughs> he talks a lot about beer and breweries in his autobiography. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Which, by the way, is a pretty cool read. I didn't finish it during the time allotted, but I might just continue reading it because it's written pretty well. It is. It's, it's kind of engaging. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know he gets, like, really into the anti-communism stuff. Yeah, but... he does. And it gets a little one note once that happens. But a lot of the yeah. anecdotes about his early life are, are really fascinating. I think. But it was in the military where he started writing satire pieces in a publication called The Service. And after leaving the military, he briefly returned to Syracuse, where he worked a variety of odd jobs. In November of 1921, he joined the Socialist Party of America as a means to meet and talk with like-minded intellectuals, but he quickly found himself disillusioned with the party. In his autobiography, he's very, very critical of the party and socialism in general, writing on the theory behind it, quote, I found the writings of the socialist on the whole very tedious, and most of Marx was guaranteed to cure insomnia. It was quite an ordeal to wade through the three volumes of Karl Marx's Capital, 
but I did. And Capital is definitely one I have not read myself because I saw volume one on a bookshelf and it was like a thousand pages long. <laughs> and I was like, I'm probably never going to get to this in my lifetime, even though it is obviously very historically significant. I've read the Communist Manifesto, but Capital looks a bit too intimidating. Yeah, same. <laughs> <laughs> but on the party itself, he was very critical of the so-called intellectuals who would chide the manual workers for not doing more reading of this theory. And he states that reading a lot might give you knowledge, but not necessarily wisdom. Mm. He befriends a painter, Roland Bolton, who had similar ideas to socialism that Schuyler did. And he said on his friendship, quote, we question that every occurrence could be explained on the basis of class struggle, that the poor were getting worse off all the time, that capitalism would destroy civilization, that a swarm of bureaucrats in Washington could run the country better than the decentralized free enterprise power structure. We noted that the results of socialism in the Soviet Union had been chaos and famine, compelling a return to capitalism under the name of the new economic policy. Worse, yeah. we both began to question Marx's holy writ in party meetings, thus quickly isolating ourselves. This was treason, but we enjoyed it and had fun twitting the orthodox. In 1922, he heard Marcus Garvey speak, who is a major proponent of the Back to Africa movement, which Schuyler did not like at all and was highly critical of him and the black nationalism movement in general, saying in part, once we accept the fact that there is and will always be a color caste system in the United States and stop crying about it, we can concentrate on how best to survive and prosper within that system. This is not defeatism, but realism. It is tragic and pointless to wage war against the more numerous and more powerful white majority and so jeopardize what advantages we possess. So uh, these kind of statements, you could obviously see why he's a controversial figure. Yeah. I don't even know where to begin, but that's, yeah. it's, it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But around this time, he becomes involved with Black Theater in Harlem and in 1923 joins the staff of The Messenger and starts writing a column for the Pittsburgh Courier. In 1925 to 1926, he was sent on assignment by the Courier to the South to report on every black urban center, and Schuyler toured every town that had more than 5,000 black people in it, which he described as, quote, I learned very rapidly that almost every town had differed in its interracial etiquette. He largely saw systemic racism as not really being a problem in the South, believing that black people's problems could be greatly ameliorated through his own efforts in cooperation with willing whites who recognized that such would be mutually advantageous and goes on to say, I was convinced that they would be far worse off under any collectivist system. And for that matter, so would the whites as amply demonstrated in Soviet Russia. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, again, the very strong anti-communist theme running through <laughs> his entire line of thinking on January 6th, 1928, he marries Josephine E. Lewis, a white actress and model from Texas, and their daughter, Philippa Duke Schuyler, born in 1931, was a child prodigy who could play Mozart at the age of four, spoke six language, and was tested to have an IQ of 185. The Messenger folded in 1928, and the then editor of the Pittsburgh Courier, Robert L. Van, came to the rescue, buying up and consolidating a number of its properties and asked Schuyler if he wanted to contribute to a weekly insert that would go out in several black newspapers with a circulation of roughly 250,000. 
1930, he's sent to Liberia to write a piece on rumors of child slavery. And Black No More, his first novel, is published in 1931, which, according to him, is the first novel to deal with the race question with levity. And it's published while he's overseas in Liberia, so all the buzz and reception upon publication is just completely unknown and foreign to him because he's deep in his assignment at the time. In Liberia, he's extremely struck by the conditions of poverty and squalor in the capital, and he goes out of the city into rural villages, interviewing the locals who confirm the brutality of the modern-day, still-going-on child slavery ring that was being committed by these Spanish pirates and slavers, I guess. Here, he contracts malaria and writes a total of six articles detailing his whole experience. After publishing his second novel, Slaves Today, which is based on his reporting in Liberia, he devotes a great deal of his attention to anti-communist writings following the Scottsboro trial. Indeed, much of his writing and his draw to conservative politics seems to come from his anti-communism stance, especially after the Russian Revolution, which sparked a great deal of debate in the Socialist Party of America. By the early 1960s, his views were more or less standard amongst the Republican Conservative Party. His views were so controversial that he was publicly discharged from the Pittsburgh Courier by a letter, as they really didn't want to be associated with the kind of things that he was writing at the time. In particular, he was a supporter of Barry Goldwater, critical of Martin Luther King being awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, and said that the race issue is much too serious to permit a handful of dreamers and self-serving schemers to divide the country further, increase irritation, resentment, and hatred, and thus hasten the likelihood of civil strife, which has been the goal of the international communist conspiracy for more than 40 years. So that's where he viewed the world when he published his autobiography in 1966. But after his autobiography was published, he tragically lost both his wife and daughter. His daughter, Philippa, was killed in a helicopter crash in Vietnam in 1967 while trying to evacuate children from the war zone. And his wife, despite the fact that by all accounts, his wife had a very abusive relationship with her daughter, but she was so affected by her death that she committed suicide in 1969, a few days before the anniversary of Philippa's death. Schuyler himself died on August 31st, 1977 in New York, writing conservative pieces for the remainder of his life. So it's a rather tragic end to his story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Schuyler, his wife and his daughter were all public figures for the majority of their lives. So it's a bit of wonder that almost no attention has been given to the newspaper Pulp Fiction he wrote for the Pittsburgh Courier in the 1930s. So let's get into the newspaper fiction for a little bit. I first encountered the story we're covering tonight in a chapter on Afrofuturist precursors in the Cambridge history of science fiction. And the premise behind this one sounded so wild that I just really wanted to cover it. But at that time, sometime last year, there wasn't really a great deal of information out there on African-American proto-science fiction. Fortunately, and with good timing, pretty much right around the time that I discovered this story, Brooks E. Hefner published his book Black Pulp, Genre Fiction in the Shadow of Jim Crow which, among other things, takes a look at Schuyler's newspaper fiction. So he opens up his chapter on Schuyler's newspaper fiction by quoting Samuel Delany, saying, For better or for worse, I am often spoke of as the first African-American science fiction author. And while that might be true in 
some senses. I think it's definitely fair to say that there are a number of precursor science fiction adjacent works by African-American authors. Probably the most relevant to our podcast, cited by Brooks and some of the other sources we've looked at, are W.E. Du Bois's The Comet, Pauline Hopkins' Of One Blood, three stories by John P. Moore, published in the Illustrated Feature section, which is one of those inserts that went out to multiple newspapers. But they include the stories The Shot Into Space, The Hidden Kingdom, and Love on Mars, which were published under the heading Amazing Stories. So (laughs) I wonder where he got that idea from. But not that amazing story. Yeah. So there's also the story Black Stalkings? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of a dystopian piece. Yeah, there's a couple others out there. And there's also a few more novels by Skylar himself, the aforementioned Black No More, and the two-part serial Black Empire, which also appeared in the Pittsburgh Courier. Since Skylar was a well-known public figure, his papers survive and are held at Syracuse University. And Hefner notes that his ideas for stories that he never used are more science fiction. Yeah, some of those are pretty interesting. Yeah, right. So mm-hmm. they're more science fiction than a lot of the words he did write, like The Insect War or The Land Under Ice, The Last White Man, and The Sinister Physician being some of the titles. And his papers provide sketches of these stories, and they're definitely very science fiction sounding with like giant species of insects that have to be vanquished by a death ray. Yeah, so it's interesting where his career could have taken him if he went more into the fiction realm versus the political think pieces and uh, journalism. Angle. Yeah, it's almost unfortunate. Because yeah. I think it, in the end, it means that he won't. I mean, even if Schuyler was never to be as well regarded a pulp writer as, as I don't know, someone contemporary like Robert E. Howard, for example, mm-hmm. he would perhaps be known for something other than conservative politics. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that might shy away some people from reading his work, but it really doesn't come up a lot at all in the story we're looking at tonight. I guess it was written kind of early on in his career in 1934, but I guess it's interesting that he probably didn't put too much stock in the stories himself. He doesn't mention the newspaper fiction at all in his autobiography, and I think there's like one or two offhand references to Black No More, but he clearly felt that his political writing was far more important than any fiction that he he could write. But his fiction did go out to a lot of people. The Pittsburgh Courier had a circulation of 250,000 in 1938, which by 1947 would grow to 357,000. And when compared with some of the other pulps of the time, it's quite high. And Black Empire seemed to do very, very well there. Yeah, right, exactly. And it's still regarded well today. I think Brooks notes that it's the only piece of newspaper fiction from these newspapers that is well regarded in scholarly circles today, which is kind of a shame. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm, I mean, I don't really know. This is the first I've ex- been exposed to anything like this, I guess. Yeah. I didn't know that this kind of thing was going on in the 30s. Yeah. And it's kind of crazy that this is still so obscure because for the first time we've made this available to read out of like a newspaper.com or whatever paywall. We've transcribed this and posted that this has never been republished before it only appeared in the mm-hmm. pittsburgh courier in 1934 and hasn't been touched since which is like yeah, yeah. it's been really nicely cleaned up too so uh, yeah there should be very few typographical errors if, if you all want to look at it you really should yeah and we certainly encourage that you do but yeah some of the contemporary pulp magazines that did the science fiction stories like amazing stories 
it had a circulation of 100,000 at its height in the 20s, but by 1934 was down to 25,000. And Weird Tales was even less, which peaked out a circulation of 50,000. So despite this pretty big audience, Skyler was dismissive of the stories. And yeah, it's just a shame that they've fallen into obscurity. So I guess that does bring us to the story tonight, The Beast of Bradhurst Avenue, which was serialized in the Pittsburgh Courier in 12 weekly installments from March 3rd, 1934 to May 19th of 1934 under the pseudonym Samuel I. Brooks. So since this has not been republished anywhere else, and since copyright for Pittsburgh Courier content hasn't been renewed, it falls into that weird gray area of between uh, 1928 and uh, whatever date it is in the 60s. This work should be in the public domain by all the research we've checked, and I definitely double-checked and triple-checked just to make sure that that was the case. Because we did want to make this available and post it on our blog spot, which you can read along with us. And yeah, we definitely suggest that you do. So as you can tell, I really like this story. Like a few that we've covered, it only has very light science fiction elements, which come in at the very, very end. So to even mention what they are might be a bit of a spoiler. Unfortunately, all the discussion in the secondary sources we've looked at, like the Brooks and the Cambridge, you know, just do spoil the end right away. So yeah. if you're looking to read this unspoiled, don't read any of the commentary on that. Just read the story. <laughs> Dive right in. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we'll save the discussion of that when we do the spoiler summary. But to briefly give a non-spoiler gist of what is happening here is that there is a series of murders where a number of African-American women get decapitated and drained of blood. And our two heroes, who is the awesome pulp detective, Walter Crummel, and his <laughs> yep. partner, Orestes Williams, are on the case. And they have a really cool kind of Holmes and Watson-ish thing going on. They actually. do. <laughs> yeah. I like the relationship between the two of them a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's great. I love how the deputy is always like, hey, chief, the case solved, right? Yeah. And, and Walter's like, hardly. We're <laughs> just getting started. <laughs> yeah. So he's like, let's wrap this up. And yeah. It's yeah. like, we were just getting started. I would almost yeah. think that it's a commentary on the police, mm. you know, just thinking they're just inefficient and eager to close the book whenever they can, even if a crime yeah. wasn't solved. But coming from Scholar's background, I don't know if he was really getting at that. Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like it's almost like a separate thing that these guys are part of the police. They're just detectives that happen to have like a whole bunch of people at their disposal. Yeah. Like it's kind of, this is really a detective story. Oh, it definitely is. <laughs> and it follows a lot of the detective tropes where you're like basically presented with different people that the <laughs> heroes have to kind of face and interrogate. Yeah. It's like going in deeper and deeper into the layers of an onion kind of and you're going like down at the core is where you finally gotten rid of all the red herrings and <laughs> you get to the core of the mystery and it's basically a progression. But it's better done than than some of its type, I will say. It's it's like even when something is a red herring, it's pretty cool, and yeah. you don't like you don't instantly forget about it, yeah. kind of thing. And like, no, the red herrings in this are great. I, uh, I have to say, <laughs> yeah, I, I it it feels like it wouldn't be out of place in a magazine like Spicy Detective Stories because it is quite pulpy and lurid in places. And I was kind of surprised at how much like forward sex and drugs there are in this. Yeah, especially mm. the the nude bodies. Yeah, like, there's a lot yeah. of nude bodies in this. Yeah. <laughs> so and yeah. i think after this period you might see a decline in overtly like 
amoral content in stories and magazines as well as the film industry. Yeah, I mean, as forward thinking as Astounding Magazine was in terms of bringing forward science fiction, the secretary of the magazine who often typed out the manuscripts would actively remove profanity and things she didn't want. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting that that's quite forward there. Also very strong in the violence. The women sometimes feel like MacGuffins who are just there to get their heads chopped off and advance the plot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and make a witch, witchy prophecy. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. I think this one may justify that trope a little more than some of its contemporaries through the ending, which we'll get to when we get there. But yeah, the yeah. not too much in the way of women characters here. So about this, the ending is very sudden. Yeah. It's, very, it's pretty abrupt. <laughs> yeah. I was a little surprised that I was reading it, and as soon as I got to the last sentence, I I was surprised to see there was nothing following it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, something I noticed with some of these pulp stories, and like some of the criticisms people level against them are fair, and some of them are not so fair. And some people say, oh, these stories are really padded out because of the word count, right? And sometimes I get that, but sometimes I feel like it's more almost as though... The real symptom of that is not necessarily that the story is overwritten, but that it's front loaded and that mm-hmm. like there's a lot of stuff at the beginning and there's a lot of right. cool stuff setting the atmosphere and there's a lot of like, oh, here are all the red herrings and this is all building up. This is a 12 part serial. We have plenty of time, right? <laughs> then all of a sudden, the last serial, everything has to wrap up and it's just bam, it's I don't know. It was it was just so sudden, right? Like I was really enjoying the way the story had built up up until that point, and I'm like, we could have had a more. I mean, I'll I'll talk about it more specifically when we get into it, obviously. But we could have had a more drawn out revel, like not revelation, but the way once the conflict was revealed, it could have been played out a little more. Yeah, because it took us so long to get there, and it was great. I enjoyed the ride, mm-hmm. and then once once we got there, it was like so quick and so over all of a sudden right and i just i don't know i I wanted more actually so that's a good thing really yeah (laughs) yeah i think some of the characters that come up at the end could have been introduced a little earlier the word count is kind of interesting in a publication like the pittsburgh courier versus a publication like amazing stories because each chapter of this appeared on a single page and it wasn't even the entire page like Mm -hmm. there were like you know, nonfiction news stories that appeared on the same page as this. Yeah. Sometimes it was about a column and a half. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Yeah. Of like really, really tiny print. I didn't quite realize it was that. Yeah. Okay. I see. Yeah. Hmm. Whereas amazing stories, you know, they would print like 20 pages at a time or whatever, if they serialize something across multiple parts. So it's just kind of interesting way of how the physical format of the media you're looking at kind of shapes how the story takes place with its structure yeah. mm. and there is room for little summaries of what had happened before yeah yeah <laughs> <In> each one <laughs> yeah because you yeah. might not have every issue of the paper right right exactly <laughs> so yeah especially if there are weeklies that are you know just printed on cheap newsprint that get thrown out really quick or easily disposed of the black pulp book talks a lot about how a lot of these newspapers were passed on like they weren't even necessarily i mean they were bought in great numbers 
but they were passed on to more people. Yeah, right. So, right. you know, you'd read the newspaper and then you'd leave it somewhere and you'd pass yeah. it on to somebody else. Right. Like, now you read the newspaper. Right? Yeah. So. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the potential readership could have been higher than the actual circulation. It, it probably was. So, again, very interesting. I guess before we get into the spoiler section, there is no film adaptation of this and probably maybe won't be for a while, but... One of my favorite film genres is the giallo, the 60s, 70s Italian sleazy take on these pulpy mysteries with the violence and sex cranked up to 10. And yeah. a lot of those films are sourced from Edgar Wallace or Agatha Christie novels, as are the German creamy films, which are mostly made earlier than the Italians. But they derive from the same set of novels, though they might not be as forwardly explicit. And I think this one here could have easily been made into like a Mario Bava movie without changing a single element of the story and no one would have bat a single eye. So if you're into that kind of plot structure. Yeah. And then, and the abrupt ending, the abrupt ending would totally have fit a Giallo mm. movie too. Yeah. Right. right exactly. There's a couple, yeah. um, what's that one? The perfume of the lady in black. And it just like takes such an abrupt left turn into absolute weirdness in the last like 10 minutes. Yeah. And it's just, <laughs> whoa. Well, what? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but so. I have had a like I said with my experience with this story is very similar to when I was I've watched some giallo and I have looked at the end and I've seen yeah. that there was only ten minutes left and I thought how how are they going to wrap it yeah, up that right. fast? <laughs> <laughs> what yeah. could happen in the next ten minutes? Yeah, there's none of the overly complicated inheritance fights that you see in those yeah. movies, but and lots of red herrings. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And yeah. I think if you like some of the genre tropes in those films, you'll you'll like this story. So unless you guys have anything else on the non-spoiler end. No, I think we should just get into it. This is a rip-roaring, bloody, thundering yeah. story. So, <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's go. That's how we should handle it. So <laughs> our story opens up with a scream rending the air of Harlem, followed exactly. by a silence on Bradhurst Avenue. Around 150th Street and the police are called. Bradhurst Avenue is a street in Harlem that borders what was called Colonial Park at the time, which is now Jackie Robinson Park. Two black officers respond to the call but aren't able to turn up anything. Down at the Harlem precinct, the white sergeant on duty is talking with some of the officers about the screams. No one knows anything, whether it was some drug addict just screaming, but some swear that it was a woman. This is really interesting. Like, I kind of got to thinking, so... All right, let's not even say 2022. Let's say, like, 1972... If you were hanging out in Harlem and you heard a scream, do you think that anybody would be like, oh, let's call the police right now? And, yeah, and no. the police would be like, hey, there was a scream in Harlem. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess they're like incredibly horrible sounding screams that would yeah. just attract that kind of attention. A few nights pass again and a scream is heard in the early morning. And this time it's murder for sure. Captain Quigley puts Detective Sergeant Walter Crummel on the case, a particularly gruesome one. A woman suspected to be Marjorie Fenwick, a young black woman, is found, but with her head missing, so there's no solid identification yet. Furthermore, all the blood has been drained from the body, adding to the mystery. Crummel is eating his breakfast at the Eureka Coffee Pot when his partner, Orestes Williams, comes in. Yeah, he hangs out there a lot and eats a lot. Like, lots of really rich food. Yeah. (laughs) It happens, like, twice, three times, Mm -hmm. maybe. Yeah, it's a running joke. Yeah, no, he's he's in the diner a lot. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But it turns out that Fenwick used to hang around Sammy Andrews, an old dancer who lives on Bradhurst Avenue, 
right around where the screams were heard. Two police bust into Andrew's place, which is decked out in a lot of fineries. The cops know he can afford from selling weed. Andrews suspects a shakedown, but he turns pale when they ask about Marjorie Fenwick and is put under arrest. Crummel and Williams search the place, and Crummel interrogates Andrews about the last time he saw Marjorie alive. She had come in to borrow some money from him to buy booze for her no-good boyfriend, Ernest Oates. The cops uncuff Andrews and tell him to call up Oates and offer him some weed to see if that will get him talking. The cops hide while the scene takes place. Oates says that he was with her on the night of the murder, and the cops then arrest them both. Crummel's again eating at the Eureka when he tells Williams that he's sure neither men committed the crime. Instead, he's just using the arrest and the bullshit story he gave the newspaper as bait for the real killer. The idea is they load up Bradhurst Avenue with cops to catch the killer in the act when he makes his next move. And it just so happens that around 2 o'clock that night, there's another horrible scream. Crummel orders the block surrounded and moves Williams to search one of the apartment buildings, asking the janitor to lead them to the roof. Crummel was on the sixth floor, and the scream came rather near to him, and as they get to the roof, they find that it's hooked from the inside. Outside, there is unbroken snow with no footprints, so Crummel puts a detective on the stairs to watch it while they search the building. The residents don't know anything, but there is one apartment that has no one answering the door, so they enter. It's gorgeously furnished with African masks and other African decor. The apartment belonging to a princess in Bula. Her yellow kimono she normally wears is draped over a chair. Crummel sees some water on the floor, which strikes him as strange, so he pulls a shower curtain back, and it reveals a white man in the tub, bound and gagged. Roland Dane was seeing the princess, and had gone out into the kitchen to investigate a noise when he received the blow in his head, finding himself in the situation he was now in. He gives the cops a description of Mbula wearing Greek silk pajamas, and tells them he wanted to marry her, but she kept refusing. Marriage would mean both of them would die. The curse of her gods is on all who violate the sacred tribal law not to bury strangers or even embrace them carnally. Since they had slept together that night, he blames himself for what must be her death. They can't find Mbula yet, but Dane says they had met on the steamer at Grand Bassam. Her father, Chief Tassala, allowed her to go abroad. Dane and Mbula bonded traveling through Europe, and they hadn't done anything sexual until that evening, with Mbula telling him, that she didn't care about the curse. If they couldn't be together, then she didn't want to live. About a month ago, she arrived in New York, sold some gold, and was able to rent her apartment. Dane furnished it with stuff from the Ivory Coast, so she wouldn't be homesick, but notes that there was a bit of an entourage of African men keeping watch over her. Ten days prior, she visited one of them, an elderly man, and seemed rather disturbed by their meeting. Dane would recognize this guy anywhere, and says that he and Mbula are of the Guru tribe, who were cannibals until very recently. They would sharpen their teeth to points and drink the blood of their victims. So, Crummel puts out an APB on the man and goes to get some breakfast, again at the Eureka. Though the African cannibals is certainly a lead, lots of things still aren't adding up. For instance, where was Mbula? Nobody could have left that building, but Williams mentions that the Africans rent out the basement as a church. They go to check out the church and see what looks like a body wrapped in linens, but it's a carved African idol with a huge red-tipped phallus. The janitor says that about a month ago, the place started to be rented out. He describes a man who is much like the elderly African of interest. They think it's likely that Mbula's body was transported down a dumbwaiter in a sack, but they don't know where, they, they don't know where she is now. 
The newspapers are making a great scandal and sensation about the case, and the captain says they need answers now. Crummel still has no more leads, though, and they decide to scope out the African church, where one night about 40 worshippers slowly file in. The rhythm of drums grows louder and louder, and Crummel and Williams are watching through the peephole. The worshippers are all new. Yeah, they see a lot through that peephole. Yeah, they do. <laughs> a hell of a lot. Yeah. It's quite a thing. It's quite a thing that uh, Skylar puts up here. Yeah, it's definitely one of the highlights of the story. <laughs> so there's 40 all-nude worshippers playing drums in a semicircle. The priest has a live chicken and some rice. He lights a candle, takes some wine, and spits it all over the idol, and places the rice at the idol's feet. Excuse me, they're all naked. That's really important. He <laughs> yeah. mentions it like six times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so when he turns and faces the crowd, not only is he naked, but he's also erect. His face is streaked with blue and yellow clay and has a necklace of human and animal bones about his neck. Three men get up from the audience and repeat the gesture of the wine, and a stout worshiper unfastens a suitcase on the platform. From the suitcase rises a snake, and using the chicken as bait, has a snake yeah. strike the idol three times. The priest then bites the head off the chicken, throws its carcass in a cauldron, spits blood out into it, and then picks up the snake, rips its head off, and also throws it into the cauldron. It's so detailed. It's, yeah. it's great. It's great. <laughs> yeah. The drumming is getting faster and more intense, and one of the worshippers sprinkles salt all over the priest. They start hammering nails into the idol as to imprison someone's soul in it and killing it with the nails. The priest bites down on the necks of the three worshippers, which is when Crummel and Williams burst in with their guns. The cops come in and ruin the whole thing. Yeah, and they do. <laughs> the yeah. old man can speak English and tells them that this Budo ritual is to find Mbula, not to harm her, and that they could have found her if it weren't for these American fools interfering, but rest assured, whoever killed her will die. People should learn not to disrupt rituals. I know. It never has yeah. any good end for anybody. <laughs> I know. And I guess, spoiler, I, I'm, I'm a little bit, like, I kind of expected a certain thing to happen in the end. Like, if there was, this were a Robert E. Howard story, even though he's coming at this from a different angle and he probably wouldn't have an all-black cast. Yeah. He would make the voodoo an important part of the end of the story. And here it really is just a red herring. Yeah. So yeah. it's padding, but it's really awesome padding. It's yeah. like, it's yeah. it's so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> but after this voodoo orgy breaks up, the janitor screams out. He's found something in a sack tied off at the neck. And it's another headless body, which the Africans identify as Mbula due to the marks on the corpse. At 2 a.m., crumbles back to square one with no clues at how the body got in the alleyway with the building being under surveillance. Crummel interrogates Gamandi, Mbula's uncle, who was sent to protect Mbula, as she was next in line for the throne. He told Mbula that for 800 years, Guru blood has never been mixed with a stranger, and that her relationship with this white man was dangerous. She performed the same ritual the cops had just witnessed a few nights earlier, and won't tell them anything about the secrets of the voodoo, forbidden knowledge to outsiders. They take him down to the station, and Crummel and Williams are clueless. Crummel says there's no miracles, and there must be some rational explanation. They ask the janitor about the dumbwaiters. There are ten of them in the building, all with the same key that the janitor and his wife have. The two people who use the dumbwaiter the most are a Chinese guy who rents the laundry room and Carl, the Iceman. And so, did anybody else get, like, a thrill 
the moment he said the Iceman. Yeah. <laughs> I did. And you know what's funny? We don't hear we don't we don't really get to see the Iceman for so much longer, but he keeps getting like name dropped. And every time I saw that, the Iceman, like, don't you know that's a that's a bad name right there. Yeah, the right. <laughs> <laughs> very ominous sounding. He is yeah. a very ominous figure that kind of lurks <laughs> over this whole part of the story. Yeah. <laughs> He's Dutch or German or something, which the janitor thinks is strange as most of the Icemen in the area are Italians. And Crummel wants to talk to this Carl, the Iceman. But as they're about to go up, they hear another scream. They rush to check out the basement totally dark as a fuse had blown, and they hear some cries towards where the Chinese man's laundry is. They enter a bedroom and see a foot sticking out from under the bed. They pull him out, and it's Wong, the Chinese laundry man with his head crushed in. They hear more crying and find Wong's son hiding in a hamper, and has the janitor take him up to his apartment away from the crime scene. They really do a sweet job of like making sure they look after this kid. Yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a horrible situation he's been put in. Yeah. Crummel sees a footprint with some sawdust in it, and Wong's black wife is missing. Crummel figures the killer had kidnapped her. The killer isn't in the African church, he isn't in the Chinese laundry, he's not in the furnace, so where is he? Crummel and Williams grab the janitor, and Casey needs to open some doors, and they find one that's always locked. They open the door and turn on the lights, and Crummel sees a number of trunks with a great deal of foreign steamship and hotel labels on them, from Europe to America. The janitor says they belong to a Professor Grousman, a German gentleman upstairs who tips well, and has also been there for about a month. It seems as Professor Grousman is studying the people of Harlem themselves, which Crummel finds unusual but not disturbing. Crummel and Williams have some back and forth about racial integration, and Williams makes multiple comments that people should stay with their own kind, referring to the interracial marriage between the Chinese laundryman and his wife, which Crummel rejects and shoots down. So I guess a bit of Schuyler's personal yeah. viewpoints coming in at this point, which is... But he re- it's interesting, though, because he rejects it, and then he says, if it were a white man that said that, you would deck him. Yeah, right. right. And, and William says, I sure would. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm just kind of... It, it is like kind of interesting because it kind of makes me think of forward. And me. Like, I guess, like what they call critical race theory now wasn't mm. a thing yet. So he kind of acknowledges it, but at the same time, but we know also how Skylar thinks, right? In yeah, case, right. Obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, definitely some commentary on the difference in, in class and, and all that. Again, one of the few points aside from the, the end where this does come in and kind of tie all this together, which we'll arrive to in a little bit. But the cops check out the janitor's place and his wife is not pleased at all by this intrusion with them coming up in her apartment. There is a huge red book, which Crummel goes to look at, but the janitor's wife, Lucy Johnson, gets quite a rate. She's a believer in voodoo from New Orleans, and she says she knows what's going on. And her dialect is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely very thick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. She grabs the book and has some spiritual premonitions of something cold and wet going through a hole, presumably a body being transported through the dumbwaiter. Yeah, and at this point I'm like, I told you there was a hole somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but she goes in this whole spiritualist trance, and uh, Skylar in his autobiography comments that his grandmother was into this sort of stuff too. So I, I, I think he was familiar with some of the conjure tales and things like that. Yeah, yeah he, he definitely seems to 
he seems to see it as this cross-cultural truth yeah in the early chapters of the autobiography it's kind of yeah. interesting yeah it is um uh, but when she snaps out of the trance the police ask her to take them there and she stonewalls them and says she doesn't know anything Based on these vague suppositions, they check out the Iceman's storeroom and find a few footprints in the dust the exact same size as the one in Wong's laundry. The Iceman's apartment is directly above the storeroom in apartment 1J, and the professor is in 1K, so they're right next to one another. Crummel has the janitor open up the rooms, despite the janitor's protesting that there was somebody in there. Yeah, it's like breaking landlord-tenant agreements. Yeah. You're not supposed to... Just yeah, right, exactly. Door. <laughs> you yeah. have to give them notice or something. Yeah, yeah. which is fortunately still the case today. <laughs> the police the police really take a lot of liberties in this story. They're like they're yeah. really throwing the weight a lot. Throw their weight around a lot and just like do whatever they need yeah. to do. Which again is pretty common in the detective fiction tropes at the time. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you often in the detective fiction stuff they're like standalone like maverick guys who just right. are not really necessarily affiliated with the police. I don't yeah. know. Sometimes they are, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the podcast won't take us too, too far down detective stories, like pure detective stories. I mean, every now and then one like this will show up. I definitely want to do some space detective stories. Oh, yes. That's yeah. a big thing yeah. for me. I want to do that. Yeah. But that, that comes up later, and, and we'll definitely get to that later. But here, Crummel's entering Carl's apartment, and he's grabbed by an unknown hand and smashed on the head twice, where he loses consciousness. Williams is waiting outside and doesn't hear the commotion and thinks it's strange it's taking so long, so he tells one of the officers to wait by the door while he goes to check it out. Williams finds Crummel unconscious with a bruise on his head and wakes him up. The perpetrator's gone. The policeman in the basement is dead, shot through the head. His coat, badge, cap, and gun are gone. And it's clear that somebody went down from 1J to the basement, and they give a description of the dead cop's badge number to the police so they can identify him if found. And this is this is kind of where I wish started to wish the story was a bit longer. Yeah, yeah, because it does get pretty tense at this point. And again, yeah, they do wrap it up pretty quickly. So it is. Yeah, they really speed through the very last part of this. Yeah, and it's coming up right here pretty much. So Kremel finds a plunger in the background and starts pulling on various boards in the apartment to find a trap door, which he does, and it leads directly into the storeroom below. Still. They have four bodies on their hands and are unable to legally identify two of them. So there's more pieces left to be tied together. And they're puzzled why two girls are headless and drained of blood. Crummel figures that Carl is the muscle and not the brains. So they go to eat again and try to track down Grousman. Before they go, Crummel throws a bunch of flour on the floor. And instead of eating, they turn back out their five minutes, presumably to lull them into a false sense of security. In this time, the body of Wong's wife is found, again, headless in a sack. Looking at 1J again, they see a bunch of footprints in the flower leading to the window. Crummel and Williams now check out apartment 1K to see if he has any link with this living right next door. Before entering, a group of officers bring in Carl, beaten and handcuffed, and Crummel tells him they know he's killed three women in Wong and that he's going to fry in the chair. Kremel tries something and asks if Carl would like to carry the heads with him to the police station, which at first makes him giddy, but then he winces in pain and falls over dead. The doctor with them finds a poison dart coated with dendang, a deadly poison, clearly murder to get him to shut up. They open up 1K and found Grousman inside, annoyed that the cops are there, but inside the apartment is a huge sedated mastiff, the professor clearly about to operate on its head. 
Crummel insists that he's doing other things with other heads, which makes Grousman angry, but Crummel notes that he's slipped up big time and tells him that he forgot to wipe the flower off his slipper. A fight then breaks out, and the professor slips away through the secret bookcase leading into Carl's room, but the officer positioned there knocks him out. Grousman curses the cops, says they've interrupted his life's work, transplanting a human brain into the skull of a dog, operating on black women in particular due to the brain size being smaller. The skulls are in the bookcase, and the blood drained from the corpses is just because Carl loves drinking blood, and he's a real butcher and sadist. Yeah, he's a vampire. Yeah. The blood makes him stronger. <laughs> yeah. It does. It's not just that he likes drinking blood. He's like... He's like the kind of the polar opposite of the Africans. He's yeah. like, they're a kind of oppositional sides of the same thing where like in their ritual, the idea of the taking, taking blood of the other practitioners that kind of increases the strength and Carl's the same. He's just a vampire instead. Yeah, He's in like a more literal sense. Yeah. Evil German butcher vampire guy. Yeah. But save from the executioner's block by Grousman. Because I guess Grousman would find him useful for various tasks like this, where vampirism is needed. Grousman is dying from his wounds, but asks Crummel how he knew about the flower on his slipper. And Crummel says he didn't and was just bluffing as the German dies. So yeah, yeah. quite a powerful end that comes rather quickly. <laughs> I like the way I like the way it ends on like the the German guy, the prof- Professor Grousman, just going damn. Yeah, as he realizes he's <laughs> outwitted by this Kenny Black police officer, yeah, right. he's just like, "Damn!" <laughs> and then he dies, and that's it. And that's like, yeah. it's so good. So even though I thought that the whole last chapter was like it could have been maybe even like four or five chapters, yeah, certainly that last that last like last scene is pretty good. The last paragraph, yeah. especially, it's like, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I, I really like the imagery of the brains being in the bookshelf. I just think yeah. of them like yeah. stuffed into like a hollowed out book. Yeah, right. <laughs> or weird jars or other things like that. And like kind of strange taxidermy knickknacks. Oh, yeah. He doesn't even need a functional brain to... All these weird guys that practice weird surgeries in their apartments, right? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, this time, again, very socially oriented with this end and the operation of essentially putting a human brain in a dog's body, this time directly aimed at the race, science, and eugenics angle. Incredibly direct and quite prescient, especially before the horrors of the Nazi regime would be revealed. Yeah. And I was just describing the plot of this story to a friend, actually. And he's like, yeah, they were uh, this crazy German scientist was just wanting to put the brains of black women into dogs for some reason, just for science. Yeah, it's like, oh, that, right. it sounds like something the Nation of Islam would have come up with, like as a propaganda <laughs> thing or something. And it's just like, yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. Almost kind of, yeah. It, I don't know. It's it, it's outrageous, but like this story was that kind of quality. It reminded me of the Devil Ray. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, it reminded me of the Devil Ray, but I actually enjoyed this one a little more. Like it was more, you know, it was. It was more fun, a bit less predictable, maybe. I mean, I had fun with the Devil Ray. Like, I, I had fun especially doing the synopsis of the Devil Ray. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, this this was just, yeah, it was a really fun detective story. And I don't know. I mean, the fact that it was a couple of police officers with, like, the whole 
force of the Harlem Constabulary behind them kind of made it different than most of the detective stories from that time that I'm used to, right? Like most of them, I don't know, it's, it's just some some guy that wants to be a detective for some reason. He's a private investigator. He's a right. dick. Yeah, yeah. Lone wolf. Yeah, like the the idea of the really canny and sharp police officer I don't feel like that was as much of a thing back then as it is now. Hmm. Yeah, I'm really not familiar with too much detective fiction from this time. Like, like I said, I, I just poked through a couple issues of spicy detective stories to see what yeah. kind would be in there, but I didn't really read anything in depth. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I've read a lot of like Ross MacDonald and Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett. Uh, those kind of writers, like I just I really like that kind of stuff have for a bunch of years so and none of these guys are really police guys like they usually actually are antagonistic towards the police right so it's interesting here that it's not only is it the police but it's it's all black police yeah well for the most part i think i think it's run by a white sergeant and captain captain yeah. has a name callahan and i think captain callahan is, a friendly yeah. irish guy yeah i think right. skyler likes the irish he talks about that in his autobiography he feels yeah. like he feels like the, the Irish people that came over in the late 19th century were treated very unfairly, and he speaks a lot of sympathy about that. So They were, yeah, and I mean, they were also mm-hmm. coming from a pretty horrible situation. Yeah. yeah. Gretchen, what other experiences have you had with, with 1930s sort of pulp, and especially maybe detective pulp kind of stuff? I mean, I've watched, it's more, um, I've seen, you know, a number of, like, noir movies based sort of in that style of yeah i haven't read too much of the actual pulp fiction uh, like the mm. literature of it you know there's a pretty interesting and noticeable line from these kind of stories to film noir to some of the horror stuff like the creamy and the giallo yeah just with certain elements emphasized more it's kind of interesting how that plays out because i wouldn't necessarily call this a horror story but i could easily see this being made into a horror movie you know mm-hmm. yeah me too yeah, yeah. it has yeah. a concept that could definitely be used for a horror film yeah definitely pretty interesting stuff overall again the, the main themes just really do come together at the very very end and <laughs> pretty much that's the only thing that people are discussing in the secondary literature about this story um both in the Black Pulps book, and the Cambridge History of Science Fiction. Which I think is interesting, because this was generally a pretty wild ride overall, mm-hmm. and I th- think it's definitely one to check out. Yeah, there's definitely some good atmospheric passages, too, like especially at the beginning when he's describing the Hollow Night and everything, and how they hear the screams, and like the reactions of all the people that are still awake, and like, you know, all the... I don't know. There, there's some good passages. There's also a little, quite a lot of repetition, but that's kind of common, I guess, for this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the same phrases are repeated like right. many times and it's almost like they're not meant to be. Like it's not it's not a conscious thing necessarily. When we were talking about the scenes at the diner, I did go back to see if it was the same dialogue when I was first reading. And it's not the exact same, but it is very close. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah true in terms of like those kind of serials where you can tell that it was written very quickly but it was written well you know i mean it was well enough that like yeah it's fine he put it out 
he was responsible for so much of the fiction stuff and he had something like he had he had a he wasn't without talent no definitely not and i think that by this point he was a pretty experienced writer at cranking stuff out on a tight deadline i mean in addition to the fiction he was also writing a lot of nonfiction. so he was probably writing like literally all the time yeah at this point in his life pretty busy yeah to say the least so recommended absolutely yeah yeah i like this one a lot mm-hmm. i would like to check out black no more at some point yeah we have that scheduled for the podcast at some point in the future mm-hmm. we're not sure when we're gonna fit it in but it's definitely been on the list for a while and mm-hmm. Black Empire would probably be uh, sci-fi adjacent enough for us to cover, too. Um, mm-hmm. I think that one has a couple official represses as well. So it's relatively well known. Yeah, that one will be a pretty thorny one to do. It's like uh, pretty much a novel about or taking back Africa through terroristic means. And yeah. it's quite extreme about it. And like it's kind of this vacillation between whether that's a necessary thing to do and whether it's like going too far kind of thing. Yeah. It seems to be like the subtle undercurrent might be that it's not such a great thing to be this militant and and terroristic about it. But like the main thrust of it seems to be like other kind of sci-fi things that I've read that are of a similar bent, which are, you know, basically almost like, Doing it a very deliberate reversal of like the colonizing yeah, exactly. motif kind mm-hmm. of thing. Like, yeah, we have to take this alien planet or something like that. And mm-hmm. we have to like, it's our job to tame this land. Right. And, but it's subverting that, I guess. So, of course, at the time, I think people were just one of the reasons that it got so much praise in the Pittsburgh Courier was that people saw the a, a certain hopefulness in it. And according to that black pulp, like somebody had written in and said, well, if so, it's this is essentially this almost he's compared to Fu Manchu and he's like this character named Dr. Balsidas. And he is a very smart person with lots and lots of resources at his disposal. And he says, like the the person that wrote the letter said, if Dr. Balsidas is real and all this is true, I want to be a part of it. Right. Interesting stuff. Yeah, so this definitely a good example of 1930s pulp with an extra level of interest. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> so that's pretty much all I had on this one. Unless you guys had anything else you want to get to our friend Mitchell? Yeah. When we finished tonight's episode, we decided to put at the end something that I don't know if lighthearted is really the right word, but certainly through the fiction that we've been doing thus far, we certainly have a lot of heavy political and ethical issues to consider and i think we should end with a short story that doesn't really deal with any of those things and it's just very personal and very sweet Mm -hmm. yeah and it is both of those things Paige mitchell and old squids and little speller
listeners who have been following the podcast for quite a while, Edward Page Mitchell might be a familiar name. This is the fourth time Chronauts will be covering a story of his, though it will be the first time doing so since I've joined. Before this recording, I read two of the other three works previously covered, The Clock That Went Backwards and The Taki Palm, which both are very fun. I, I, I like, so far, of the three stories, I have enjoyed them immensely. Yeah, yeah, they're all really good. I just think, I think it's so interesting that Mitchell is like, so unsung, you know, like, it's, mm-hmm. it's different than the way other authors are unsung. Like, somebody like Bogokov, he didn't have an audience, but it was different. He was prevented from having an audience. It's almost like Mitchell didn't care, and he was just like, yeah, I'm just, just, I'm just doing this newspaper thing. My name's not even on these. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and he's very versatile. So, um, Nate and I have talked at length about... Uh, how the clock that went backwards was one of our favorite stories of the early sort of batch of stories that we did. Mm-hmm. Gretchen, what did you think of the other stories that you read? Which I think we also did the talkie pump. Yeah, the talkie pump was very funny. I I did laugh out loud yeah. a few times while reading <laughs> that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very witty. I, I liked that one a lot. And the clock that went backwards, I, I really liked the gothic feeling of it. It felt very like especially the beginning with the when he's recounting yeah. like the genealogy of his family it kind of reminded me a bit of the yellow and red the Tanith Lee story and how it's sort of setting up oh. there's the way that it's kind of at least in the beginning focusing on the family aspect of it right i i thought that was really interesting and as i said they they both have a very different feelings and just as those two works differ pretty strongly in tone so too does the story we'll be covering here differ from them. An Old Squids and Little Speller, published in 1885 in The Sun, is a, also a great story, and it's bittersweet and very touching. I really like this one as well. And I did tear up when I read Old Squids and Little Speller. Yeah, it's very melancholy, and he just doesn't have that vibe in his other stories. And I'm kind of curious as to his other science fiction stories of which there's quite a few we still have yet to cover mm-hmm. so it's interesting to see where he'll take yeah those. i mean there's not there's not that many that are maybe strictly classifiable as science fiction but there's certainly a lot of like i think there are two two books that are available with his complete pretty much published uh, yeah. fiction and mm. One of them even has them sort of categorized by genre. can't remember which one it is. It's I think it might be the one available at Project Gutenberg, actually. Yep. Mm. So, I mean, I, I it definitely is true that a lot of them have a different mood. And I think that maybe that might be something that he did consciously. Mm-hmm. Just because he wanted to... He was a newspaper person and he was kind of anonymous. And he's like, yeah, I, I can write any mood that is needed. Yeah. A lot more freedom to experiment. Yeah, yeah, in a way. In a way, I mean, it's unfortunate because it almost seems like I'm not quite sure if I can describe the Mitchell voice. But mm. in another way, it's like it's cool because he is that versatile. I mean, the melancholy is in in the clock somewhat, I think. Okay. I think that story yeah. is, mm. is pretty melancholy. But I also think like this story. Now, it's weird. I read the story and I, I really enjoyed it. Like it, it felt. I felt the emotion of it, but afterwards when I thought about it, I'm like, yeah, it kind of does feel like something that's like a sentimental thing that you would see in a new, like, 
a magazine or something like it, it's I'm not I'm not meaning to belittle it because I liked it but it has this like sort of sentimentality to it that just it feels like I don't know what a good comparison is but like like I want to compare it to something but I, I feel like that would be doing the story a disservice because I really liked it but it's kind of like reading something in Reader's Digest for instance and how they all have to they seem to have this like life emotion kind of feeling to them where you're like you know oh yeah that's that's tragedy that's life and that's like (laughs) usually it's really cheesy and not good but i think in this story it was good like i don't have an issue with any of it i think that he he did a really sweet thing writing this story and and it's still potent over 150 years later so yeah i mean he does it well and mm-hmm. he manages to convey the emotion without being trite, which is a quality that you probably don't see a lot in other newspaper fiction of the time. Yeah. Sorry, mm-hmm. trite. That's a good way of describing what I was trying to say. Like, it's, <laughs> it's not quite there, though. So I was reluctant to say it because, like, the story's better than that. But yeah. it almost has that. Uh, I don't know. Like, I just I keep thinking of, like, stories like those songs from the 60s about the woman who was brought up with a dog and she had to watch her dog die and it was like so horrible and tragic but it's so part of life you know it's like yeah it's like you listen to them now and they're kind of funny you know it's like i remember this tape from one of these celebrities at their worst compilations and it's like casey Kasem, the dj guy getting all pissed off because right. uh, yeah. he had to read a letter out, like he was supposed to read letters out loud on the air and then play, play a song. And he had to play a song about somebody whose dog died. And, and he was like yelling at his, I don't know, like his technicians or whatever who were like giving him the letters to read and stuff. He's like, how could you give this to me to read on air? I'm souring the mood of the whole thing. And he, It's funny because if you ever heard him talk, he's so like, friendly and nice and stuff but when he's off air he's like cursing like a sailor and it's, it's so funny but yeah anyway the story was nothing like that but it was just it, it was kind of it had that kind of oh this is such a tragedy feeling to it but mm-hmm. somehow not being trite mm-hmm. yeah I, I think that it's like yeah it is it isn't trite i i think that it has a pretty s- strong emotional weight for the length that it is and it conveys it really well. Hmm. It also yeah. touches on some themes that's kind of been addressed on on the podcast before, and I think maybe why it's considered science fiction, which we'll get to in the spoiler part of the story. But yeah, an interesting precursor in some ways, because again, with all of Mitchell's stories, he's just so early. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I I just I I just keep coming back to that thing. This guy didn't get any credit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I had never heard of him until. When both of you started talking about Edward Page Mitchell and you mentioned the clock that went backwards, I had not, I didn't know his name. Yeah, just one of those obscurities that like kind of got revived in the 70s. But even then, I don't think a lot of people today recognize him or are But he didn't make it into the Time Traveler's Almanac. Yeah, Mm. he, he is anthologized a couple times for sure. Again, this is a name that we didn't come across necessarily right away when we were doing the research from it. And certainly if you're looking at like, you know, the most important 19th century science fiction authors, he wouldn't make a lot of people's list, I don't think. So if anything, it almost seems like he's famous for this. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus thing. 
but even that not necessarily associated with his name. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess the challenges of writing an anonymous... Right, mm. exactly. You never know what's going to be your legacy. Yeah. Well, why don't you tell us how this sweet little story goes? Yes. So, Old Squids and Little Speller is set in New England in the early 19th century, where a man by the nickname of Old Squids, though he is only in his early 20s, is taking over a toll house whose previous resident recently passed away. He is advised to repair and update the sign of the toll house, since the old one is getting worn. Squids ends up needing to create an entirely new sign, though while he is able to build the board, he has more trouble with the announcement on it. He is only slightly literate, able to merely copy the toll rates from printed cards that he has from the company. After putting up a new sign, Squids aims at someday making a better one, one that'll be a credit. Living farther from the farms and the town in the area, a stage driver asks Squids one day what he would like in the city, as the toll housekeeper always spares milk to the people passing through. Squids requests a spelling book, with the intention to learn how to read and write. After receiving the book, he attempts to learn by himself, but gets quickly stumped. Squids then comes up with a plan, promising candy to a young farm boy who passes the toll house if he can prove he can read, pretending that he himself already knows the words he asks the boy to read out for him. As he continues to learn new words, Squids begins planning a new board. One evening, a woman comes to Squids' house, soaked by rain and carrying an infant, a little boy, in her arms. He at once invites her in, giving her food and drink as well as a place to stay the night. Squids discovers the woman had left during the night when he awakes the next morning. He also finds that she had left the child behind, who he immediately makes a connection with and starts to care for as though he were his own. He names the boy Little Speller, after he catches him looking at his spelling book, promising to learn how to read it together with the child. When Squid begins teaching Little Speller how to read, it soon becomes clear that the latter is a very quick learner. Little Speller also begins to master mathematics, getting books on arithmetic and working through them. It is Little Speller who makes the new sign for the toll house, making Squids immensely proud, telling any traveler that it was the boy who had done it for him. Soon Little Speller even builds a new toll gate that opens by a lever, which earns him the title as genius. When a mill is built near the toll house, Little Speller visits constantly and watches with fascination. Squids is initially concerned about Little Speller's fixation, but realizes that the boy is trying to work out an invention for the mill. Eventually, Little Speller creates a weaving machine for the mill that works better than what they already have. He and Squids show it to the superintendent who, upon seeing it in action, wants to install it in other mills and makes a fortune doing so. But Squids and Little Speller are content even without proper credit. Squids is proud of Little Speller and tells him that there is a part of him in the device. That's you, Little Speller. That's you working. It ain't the machine. That's only wood and iron. Unfortunately, while Little Speller is focusing on another invention, there is an accident, and he is mortally wounded. Mill workers bring the boy home to Squids, who is able to speak to him before he dies. After his death, Squids always keeps the model of the mill invention close, speaking to it and running it, claiming that Little Speller is in it, and that he can see him when he looks at it. And that is the end of the story. Yeah, quite sad at the end. Mm -hmm. um, but it does touch upon an interesting theme that we've seen in more than quite a few stories so far, 
and even sometimes in real life of the scientist or engineer character who gets so wrapped up in their work that it literally ends up killing them. Mm. Definitely. But this one is also a child. Yeah. Which I think is really different. It is. This one is not a scientist. Like, he's not a scientist or engineer in the way that we're used to seeing. He's instinctually an engineer. He doesn't even have to study. He just knows. Mm. So... This is obviously a riff on the changeling myth, right? Mm -hmm. So the child is either not a human child or perhaps a mutant or something, right? Yeah, that's that's, when I read a description of this at first, it was said it was an early example of uh, an intelligence accelerated mutant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it could be. It could be or could be he could be not like an alien. Right? right, like he was just—he was just left there by this mysterious woman. We don't know who she is, but presumably she saw that old Squid was a good person to care for this offspring, and he was. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, things didn't quite go right in the end. But I don't know. I mean, is this is this really interesting and, and adds another layer of sadness to it? Almost like mm-hmm. it's like take care of my strange preternaturally intelligent baby right and then (laughs) i don't know i mean it just it made me really feel like wow where did where did this come from right where what origins did this have Mm -hmm. what origins did little speller have who is the woman we're never Mm -hmm. to know but again when it's a changeling you do never know and that's part of the whole thing of of the changeling myth right is that you you don't know and you can feel like your own child maybe was replaced by something else. And I guess that can be pretty negative. But here is like a man who's living alone in a shack somewhere. Doesn't really have anybody in the world. And then he gets visited by this mysterious stranger. And she leaves him something. And she leaves him something wonderful. And for a few years, he gets to have this beautiful thing and not only is it something that he has but it's like a relationship something Mm -hmm. where yes he's a father and he's a teacher but the people outsmarts the teacher but not only that it's not confrontational it's not like Sharik and Professor Prio Brasensky it's okay I understand that you're smarter than I am and we need each other right because you don't know what it's like in the world. And yeah, I mean, in a way, it's like it is really sad that the story ended when it did. I mean, <laughs> where could things have gone, right, with the two of them? Yeah, I don't know. I like how he left it vague about his origins. It's yeah. it's, it's a very nice touch. Mm-hmm. And the relationship between the two of them was, I thought, very touching and endearing. Yes, yeah. it's really sweet. Gretchen, wasn't there a Star Trek TNG episode? Oh, both of you would probably know because you're fans. Wasn't there a TNG episode like this? There's the one where Troy is pregnated and has to raise a child. I guess so. Yeah, that one. Yeah, it's been so long since I've watched Next Generation. I know there's a couple episodes with like weird genius kids. Yeah. There is a concerning amount of Star Trek episodes where there's a child for one episode and then it dies at the end because they realize they don't want to have a child on board the ship anymore. 
I think it's just that, again, it's this changeling thing. It's just so fascinating to people, right? And it's mm-hmm. often understated, like, they don't name it outright, but it's like the feeling that your child or, or, or a child could get replaced by something, and you wouldn't necessarily know. Like, you wouldn't know until some strange thing started to happen, maybe. And then how would you feel about it? Mm-hmm. Then would you be like, you know what? It's perfectly okay. I mean, this this child was put here for a reason, right? Or it might be, like, horrible, like the omen, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Where you're kind of like, my child is the son of Satan! <laughs> right? But, I don't know. I mean, this is a very benevolent kind of way of looking at it, right? There's, mm-hmm. It's not sinister at all. Yes, yeah. no. You know? Yeah, I, I had, because there were points during the story, and I, I knew that it ended in a pretty melancholy way so i i wasn't sure you know where it was going to go and i thought there were several times when i thought that maybe something would happen between them relationship wise yeah that would like they would become hostile towards each other you know something that would have really sucked yeah yeah but no, no there's pretty much nothing but kindness in this story yeah. and i think that's kind of a rare thing to see yeah old squids was such a sweetie and you know like he wouldn't no, he's just he's but, just proud. He's just proud of little Speller. Yeah. He wants to show everyone his accomplishments. Yeah. Yeah, and of course I forgot about one of the most infamous examples, the midwitch cuckoos. Right? Mm. All the women are pregnant, but it's not from their husbands. And yeah. it's the strange alien children. And mm-hmm. I mean a part of the problem is perhaps how the how the humans treat them. But yeah, it's like it's pretty much the, there's definitely a feeling of not safety and not like you know it's not maybe not good mm-hmm. in that story in that book and in the movie that was based on it whereas yeah again this like feels i don't know the isolation of it is really cool too like how it's it's set in this really rural setting and it's like this guy is totally left on his own nobody mm-hmm. bothers him mm-hmm. and he can just i mean in some ways it seems like a lonely kind of drab life but on yeah. the other hand he works for this company that doesn't even really care necessarily about the billboard that he has up there. <laughs> you know, like, as long as it's readable, we don't really care. <laughs> Just do whatever you want. I'm sure being a toll booth attendant back then is a little nicer than now. Especially yeah. sitting on early 19th century New England on a river where there's not as much industrial pollution and all that other unpleasant stuff. You know, there's not cars zipping by you at 60 miles an hour. It's some carriage and some guy's horse. Prodding along. It might be an attractive, peaceful, idyllic life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like a funny contrast to all the Western stuff that we've seen so far. Yeah. Where, like, it seems really dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When I finished the story, I actually, I told my mom about it because hmm. she had been asking me about the podcast. And yeah. I mentioned that I read the story and I summarized it for her and she had actually started crying as I told her the story. <laughs> Oh. Yeah. I mean, it does have that effect. Yeah. Yeah. I've enjoyed all the Mitchell stories, and I also do definitely appreciate his versatility. But not only that, like, every story seems to have an impact, you know? It it makes you Mm -hmm. feel a little bit of something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, whether it's humor or dread or something. Yeah. The other one that I read, which was like not really science fiction, but it was kind of, I can't remember the name of the story now. I might have to look it up. 
but I was kind of mentioning it in our Discord channel, and it was like this story about these people that hold a seance, and they hold a seance when they bring this guy back, and he's like, yeah, we're the dead, and we want to, like, we want to return, and we want to inhabit the bodies again, because, like, it's not that great here, so we, we actually want to come back, just come back, and and, yeah. and they start doing that, and the whole thing is written as this kind of, like, satirical newspaper piece about how much the immigration of the dead is now going to be a problem <laughs> it's like it's really funny as it's quite old too and it, it reflects kind of in a way i think some of the ways that people think about immigration today you know it's not not like it's dead people but it's like oh what are we gonna do now like this is a problem <laughs> it, just, it was pretty funny and and yeah taka pomp is hilarious mm-hmm. yeah and I think we have flagged coming up at some point Crystal Man as mm. well as Ableist Man in the World and maybe one or two of the others. But certainly more stuff to check out by him in the future. Yeah. Cool. I'd definitely like to read more from him. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting finding somebody like him. I mean, like you said, Nate, he, he did kind of, I guess, get rediscovered in the 1970s. But even so, you know, he's not maybe mentioned in the way that he should be and right it is even just so funny to think like when he wrote these stories there was no byline for him so yeah it's almost unfathomable today because everyone wants to have their watermark on something right so mm-hmm. yeah, it doesn't always happen that way yeah, yeah. i mean today it doesn't always happen that way either yeah but, no that's that's very true yeah. i was actually looking at something yesterday where you can get your hire somebody to write your essay for you for sixteen dollars a page. <laughs> yeah, look at her profession if there ever was one. <laughs> I, I know some of my classmates use that during quarantine. Hmm. I'm sure it happens sometimes. I mean, it's sad to think about, you know, like because also, I mean, it, it obviously if these things like that become too prevalent, it obviously means that people who can afford it are going to obviously. <laughs> have the privilege to say things like, oh, I don't have time to write right. these essays. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, yeah, read this little short story. I mean, there's not really a lot to... Um, it's the emotion of it. It's the emotion mm-hmm. of it. Now, when you finish it, you, you might you feel your eyes prickle, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's a sad changeling story. And it's really good. Mm-hmm. Yep, we like Mitchell here. Yes. Okay, next time we have a really packed episode, we are going to sort of continue the theme we've started this time. And we are going to continue talking about body modifications and transplants and things of that nature, as well as uplifting. And if you don't know the concept of uplifting, it's something described, I think, coined for the first time by science fiction author David Brim. But It's actually been around a lot longer than that. And we're going to be discussing several works. It brings me great delight to say that we will be discussing, for the first time, Olaf Stapleton and his 1944 novel, Sirius. We'll also be discussing Soviet author Alexander Belayev and his 1925 novel, Professor Dowell's Head. We'll also be discussing H.P. Lovecraft's 1921 pulp self-consciously over-the-top i don't know if you can say masterpiece but it's a certainly an interesting work and has a certain affinity to it as it was made into a film and has 
been made into a apparently really good graphic novel, but this is his 1921 work, Herbert West, Reanimator. And finally, a short story by Carl Gruner. Mr. Vivica's style, as we have translated it, because it's never been translated before, am I right? I believe so. So we previously did his work, The Martian Spy. It's a very short story. We really enjoyed it. This also is a really short story, about 3,000 words. So it'll be up on the blog spot very shortly, and we recommend that you read it, because, I don't know, we liked the last Grunert story, I think, and... This one seems like it'll be pretty cool as well, and it involves severed heads. Oh, it definitely does. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So, keep the buckets of brains out of the reception area so that people can't see them. And watch out for the Iceman. This has been Coronauts.